bless our hearts, Lord, as we study your word. And I pray that you would just guide our thoughts and help us, Lord, to uh, focus in on what you would have us to hear today. Let us hear from you. I pray that you guide and direct in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Well, we began a series last uh, week, a series on the truth about our hope. This whole year, we've been focusing on the truth, and the truth will make you free. And every sermon series that I preached was talked about the truth about something. <coughs> Excuse me. And this week, uh, this month, we're looking at the truth of our hope. Uh, we saw that the hope uh, motivates us to holiness last week. And the hope that we see when we look at that manger scene down here on this communion table is not a coming child, but the hope of a coming king. Amen? The Christ child has already come and has lived and has given himself in his death on the cross. He arose again on that third day, shattering the chains of sin and death. Our hope is wrapped up in what he has done and what he is doing now and what he will do one day coming very soon. Amen? Lord willing. Uh, so our hope is looking forward. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25, we looked at these verses last week as well. But verse 24, he says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And boy, that verse describes what we're waiting for today, amen? That hope we have in the coming Lord. Our hope is looking forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be our King. Here in this passage that we read just a minute ago, we see the coming day when all the nations will stand before Christ, the judge. On that day, Christ will separate the sheep from the goats. And that is, those who have accepted Christ, I believe this speaks of those saved during the tribulation, and those who have rejected Christ at all times, there's one determining factor raised here, their humanitarianism. I tried desperately to come up with a smaller word for the title today because uh, it wouldn't fit anywhere. But nothing means quite exactly what this word means. And so I went ahead with the word humanitarianism. Uh, that is not to say that their humanitarianism, by the way, will save them. Uh, but that he knows his sheep because of their love. And just as Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have what? Love one to another. That's how they'll know that we're his disciples. This is the principle. The hope that we have in Christ motivates his people to humanitarianism. We've seen this to be true throughout all of the ages. The unsaved and pagan world does not see people through the eyes of compassion. Plato and others taught that a poor man should be left to die if he could no longer work. Christians through the ages have given to help to the poor, the oppressed and the sick and the alone. Christian sociologist Rodney Stark recognized the role of Christians in the Greco-Roman world of the, of the Bible times. He said, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social, uh, social solidarity. 
and to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Many of the hospitals and orphanages and schools and other places of refuge have been founded by Christians and Christian organizations throughout the years. Humanitarianism is the outworking of love for our fellow mankind. Jesus said, this is how you, the world, will know that you are mine, if you love one another. In our passage today, I want us to see three details to be realized regarding this hope that we have, this motivation that gives us the motivation to serve one another. First of all, let's see number one, the assumption, the assumption that's made. Notice with me that in this passage, there is an assumption made about the sheep. They are not sheep because they served, rather they served because they were his sheep. Amen? Because they were his, we see that the first of all, letter A there, the sheep loved. Because they were his, they loved. The actions of the sheep portrayed by the king are actions of love. It is the outpouring of the love they felt in their heart for their fellow man. It was just what they did. The sheep loved. The goats did not. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, that if you have love one to another. So the assumption is made even by all men around us when they see us love another human is that we are Christ's disciples. Don't get me wrong. There are other motivations for doing good deeds. Recognition, guilt, self-advancement, just to feel good. The age-old philosophical question is, is there such a thing as a selfless act? If I receive good feeling for doing the act, is that selfless still? <laughs> but for Christians, we are not motivated by any of these things. Or rather, we should not be. But are motivated to love one another because we have been loved by God and we have this hope of Christ coming to help us, to save us, to take us home. God is love. And if we are to have a part in Him, we must have love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says it. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The assumption is made that the sheep loved those that were in need. Because just as any love, it did not stop at a feeling, for true love is not a feeling. True love is an action verb. So the assumption about the sheep was then that not only did they love, but let her be, the sheep helped. The sheep helped. There was an action to their love. And they fed the hungry. They gave drink to the thirsty. They, gave, they took in the stranger. They clothed the naked. They visited the prisoner. <coughs> Excuse me. The hope that they had in Christ motivated them to help others who were hurting. Galatians tells us that it's not the outward show that matters. Galatians 5, 5 and 6 says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith that worketh by love. For the Christians in Galatia, it was the outward sign of circumcision that was all important because they were skewed away from the truth by the Judaizers that had come into the church. For us, it may be what we wear or what we drink or what we entertain ourselves with. Not that any of these things don't matter, but it is not these things which make us righteous. Amen? Just as the circumcision cannot make us righteous. But it's the faith which is at work in our lives by love. Our love is motivated by our faith, our hope. Our works are motivated by our love. It's just an assumption. If you are his sheep, you will love and you will help others. Verse 41 through 46 make it clear. If you do not help others, you are not a sheep, but a goat. Verse 45, then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did, not, uh, did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So we see the assumption made about the sheep. They served, they loved, and they helped others. Now let's see number two, the result. There's the natural and expect, expected result of, the serv of their service. First of all, letter A, they helped the needy. Of course, if they're serving, they're going to help the needy. We, may, we can assume this. The hungry became full. The thirsty got, became satisfied. The homeless became sheltered. The lonely became comforted. The naked became clothed. All as a result of these Christians' outward focus. They saw a need and they did something about it. The lawyer asked Jesus what he might do to inherit eternal life. Jesus answered him, knowing that he was a lawyer, one who studied the Mosaic law. And he asked him, what is written in the law? Jesus asked him this. He knew he knew. So he says, what, what's written in the law? Luke 10, verse 27 says, He answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said to him, Do this and ye shall live. The lawyer was caught and saw himself as guilty by his own words. He knew he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He wished to justify himself. So he asked, And who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who exactly is my neighbor? To answer this question, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man is found in need. He's been stripped of his clothes. He's been robbed. He's been injured and left for dead. Along came a priest, but he sees the man and passes on the other side of the road. Then comes a Levite, a worker in the temple, and he also passes on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan came along and helped the injured man. Not the one you would have expected to help an injured Jew. There was a bitter feud between the Samaritans and the Jews in the time of Jesus here. This lawyer that Jesus was speaking to would have had very strong opinions about these people, the Samaritans. They ignored God's law and created their own temple 
to worship at. They had intermarried with other races who the Babylonians had brought to the land of Samaria, so they were no longer full-blooded Jews. Jesus asked the question, which of these three is the neighbor unto this injured man? The lawyer had no choice but to say the one who showed mercy. He didn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. But he said the one who showed mercy was his neighbor. The one who expressed love through his works. And Jesus says, go and do thou likewise. The Bible plainly and clearly commands us in Matthew 22, 39, where he says the second, he's talking about the second of the greatest commandments. The first was to love the Lord thy God. The second one is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In the Old Testament is commanded in Leviticus 19, 18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Paul sums up the last five of the great ten commandments in this one command in Romans 13, 9. He says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The first of the commandments deal with God. If you love God, you'll do those things. The second great commandment is wrapped up in the last of the five. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal. You're not going to murder. You're not going to do these things that God commands us not to do. The result of the service was the meeting of the needs of the needy. I heard about an elderly woman who walked into church. The friendly usher greeted her at the door and helped her to uh, up the flight of stairs there at the church and uh, he said, where would you like to sit? And he politely asked her, and she said, the front row, please. Oh, you really don't want to do that, the usher said. The pastor is really boring. The woman said, do you happen to know who I am? He said, no. He said, I'm the pastor's mother, she replied indignantly. He said, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> he was helping the needy, but he wasn't really doing very good at the loving his neighbor part. It really is no surprise that the sheep were known by their service. But the surprising twist that Jesus offers in our text, it's no surprise to us, but it was a huge surprise to his hearers. And the surprising twist in this text is the whole point. In serving others, let her be, they served Christ. Naked and ye clothed me, verse 36 says, and I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we sick, saw thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto me, I have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Our focus needs to be pointing outward. 
And in so doing, we serve the Lord pointing upward. Paul says in Philippians 2, 4, Look not every man on the, his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't let your focus only be your own food, your own water, your own clothing, your own home, but also focus on the needs of others. It's really kind of an interesting scene. When we focus on Christ, He points our eyes automatically outward to the needs of others. When we put our feet to that focus and help others, we're actually helping and blessing Christ. The upward focus leads to an outward focus. The outward working is actually an upward working. In this passage, there's an assumption made about the sheep and the goats. The sheep love and help. The goats do not love, nor do they help. Then we see the results of the service. The needs of the, ne of the needy were met. We ended up then serving Christ in the process. But why should we serve others? Well, I know that we are Christians, and Christians are supposed to love. But what is it that is the, number three, the reason? What is the reason for the service? What motivates the Christian to serve one another? We look outside of this particular text for that answer today. It's just assumed that the sheep will serve others here in this text. But in Ephesians, we're told one reason that Christians will serve. It's because they are, letter A, created unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The Christian is not like Christ because of his own works. You can't do enough on your own to be like Christ. There's no way. And yet God, when he works through us and does his work through us, we become like Christ. No, we are his workmanship. The word means that which is the result of the work of someone else. Amen? Hey, let's read that again, okay? That which is the result of the work of someone else. Amen? Hey, it's not dependent upon you. Amen? It is God working through us. We don't have to be smart enough. We don't have to be strong enough. We don't have to have the wisdom in order to deal with it. God works through us. We are His workmanship. Our good works are the result of the word that Christ has done, the work that Christ has done for us. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The reason we serve is because we were created to serve. In China, some churches welcome new believers by saying, Jesus now has a new pair of eyes to see with, new ears to listen with, new hands to help with, and a new heart to love others with. What a great introduction to Christianity, amen? Oh, if we all had that realization, we would be much busier serving the Lord. Oh, we need to be busy serving others, and thereby we serve 
God. We were created for it. A little boy's first grade teacher asked him, what position does your older brother play on the football team? And the boy thought for a moment and proudly answered, I, I'm not really sure but I, uh, what it's called, but I think he's a drawback. Sounds like he holds back the team rather than helps them. Perhaps too many of us are willing to settle for that position in our jobs or our churches or in our families or in our relationships. It's not enough just to be on the team. We need to also find a position of valuable service and get busy helping the team. Not only were we created unto good works, but secondly we see that we were gifted for good works. We are gifted for good works. God is gifted each and every one of us for the purpose of serving Him. Say, Pastor, I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. Because God has promised that He would give you a gift. And so you need to be busy finding out what your gift from the Holy Spirit is and get busy serving Him. Each of us have a gift, and the purpose of that gift is to serve Him and serve others. In case you haven't figured it out yet, we do that serving God by serving those who are around us, those who are in need that God puts in our path. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have been given by grace this gift. We need to be good stewards of what we have been given and use that gift to serve other people around us, thereby serving God. You have a gift given to you. Be a good steward and get busy. Think of the parable of the talents. You'll find that just above the text where we began reading today, verse 14, the Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one to every man according to his several abilities, and straightway took his journey. By the way, notice the different varying levels of gifting he gave. Amen? Don't look at someone else. Well, how come he gave them five? How come I only get one? Okay? You just be busy dealing with the talent that God gave you. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Verse 16. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained unto, uh, uh, gained unto other two. But he that had received one went and digged into the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. It's kind of the day of reckoning. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Isn't that interesting, by the way? You've been given many. I will make you ruler over many. You have been given few. I will make thee ruler over many. Isn't that interesting? 
don't worry about they have a bigger job. They have more recognition. They have more public job than I do. Don't worry about it. God's reward is the same for all of us if we just stay faithful. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord, he says. Verse 24, Then he which had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, and thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. He's proudly presenting his one talent back to him. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I had not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, what a story, amen? You have been given talents. Some, a few. Some, many. Maybe some, just one. I feel like I have the one. <laughs> in, this verse, in these verses, we're dealing with a monetary value. We're dealing with a talent which is a monetary value. But in our gifts, we use the word talent that God has given us in the normal usage that we use it. And it has the same principle. Are you using what God has given you? Or are you burying it? There is no greater gift you can give God this Christmas than to use what God has given you to give back to Him. You know, it's exciting to get a, give a gift to something to our children or someone else and see them use it, especially a gift of something useful and that can be used to bless other people. Years ago, I, uh, we bought my wife a cricket cutter, and now she has a, a different machine, but it, it cuts out shapes out of paper and out of vinyl that can be used for projects or bulletin boards, etc. It's exciting every time she gets that out and uses it to bless someone with a gift from that project uh, or a project that they have. It's even more exciting when she uses the gift that I helped buy her for me. <laughs> Amen? Why? Because I had a part in it. And it's exciting to see her express her love for me with something that I had a part in helping her attain. What are you doing with the gifts that you have been given? May the hope that we have in the coming Christ motivate you to use your gifts to help those around us. We serve others and thereby we serve the Lord because we were created unto good works. We serve the others because we were gifted for good works. And then lastly this morning, we serve others because we are provoked unto good works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, it says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The author of Hebrews says, As we hold our faith without wavering, we ought to consider one another to think of one another 
and to provoke us to love and do good works. We often good at provoking one another. But the goal here is not to make someone else mad, but to provoke to love others and to do good to others. When native converts of the island of Madagascar used to present themselves for baptism years ago, it was often asked of them, what first led you to think of becoming a Christian? The answer usually was that the changed conduct of others who had become Christians was the first that arrested their attention. They would say something like, I, I knew this man to be a thief. That one was a drunkard. Another was cruel and unkind to his family. Now they are all changed. The thief is an honest man. The drunkard is sober and respectable, and the other is gentle and kind in his home. There must be something in a religion that can work such changes, they would say. There was a difference in their lives because of Christ. When we lived in Bernie, California, up in the mountains, there was a family that started coming to our church, and uh, the, that was a husband and a wife, and they had two sons, a teenager and one that had graduated just shortly before they came. The teenager would come with them to church, but the older brother just never came. He could just never quite get in there. One time they brought him to church for a, some kind of special service or something like that, and we had been praying for him for a long time because his family had asked us to pray for Lee. And so we prayed for him often, and we would beg God, Lord, draw him to you, help him to be saved. And, and uh, the young adults class, which, you know, I don't know if I qualify for that anymore, but anyways, the, the young adults class that we were in was, uh, would especially pray for him. And one day he came, and us guys kind of surrounded him at the back of the church and just started talking to him, friendly and stuff. In fact, his mother kind of just like poked in to see, you know, if we were, you know, really kind of trapping him there or something. But I uh, saw we were all having a friendly conversation. But we began to talk and witness to him, and he'd counter back with questions and, and concerns and doubts that he had. And he says, but what about this? How can you really believe this? And, and such and such. And he'd just go back and forth. And he left there without accepting Christ as our Savior, and we were brokenhearted. And we uh, began to just fervently pray for him. Right before Thanksgiving, we got word that he and a young man from the Christian school where my wife had worked and another man that we didn't know were driving on the back road, on dirt road, and we don't know what happened, but their car flipped and became airborne and hit a tree on the roof of the car about 10 or 15 feet high. Two of them were killed instantly. One survived. Lee died. Jacoby, the young man from our Christian school, died. The other man was injured severely but survived. We were just broken heart. I mean, we were beside ourselves with grief, with the idea that he never accepted Christ as a savior and I went to go see a mutual friend of theirs and uh, ours and that was supposed to be in that car, but he had a good hand at Uno and decided not to go with him to the store. We went to, I went to see him, and I began to talk to him and hug him and just love on him and as he was grieving his friend's loss of his friends. 
And he made a statement. He said, isn't it just like God, isn't it amazing that the one person that wasn't saved survived? I said, what do you mean? Lee died. He said, no, he was saved. I said, what are you talking about? No, we talked to him. He wasn't saved. He goes, no, just like a week ago, we were driving down the freeway. The, it was the highway that was the main road in town. We were driving down the road, and he said he just he was driving. He just pulled over all of a sudden. He turned to me and said, "I've got to settle this. Can you help me?" And he bowed his head right there in the car and accepted Christ as a savior. I said, "Travis, do have you told his parents?" He said, "Well, I just assumed they knew." I said, "I know for a fact that they don't know." because they're grieving as if their son is in hell. You need to go right now and go tell them. And he did, and they had a billion questions for him. But hope was all of a sudden given. I think it was at the funeral that his dad stood up and said, when we first started coming to the church, he said, my heart wasn't right. My life wasn't right. Our family wasn't right. And I would do things that I'm not proud of. He said, it was just a couple of weeks ago that I asked my son, Lee, why won't you give your life to Christ? He said, I just don't know if it's real. I just don't understand. I don't know if it's real. He said, I told him, I said, Lee, when was the last time that you heard me yell at anyone in the family? When was the last time that you saw me pick up something and throw it across the room out of anger? I said, Dad, well, it's been a while. He said, I'll tell you when it changed. When I accepted Christ as my Savior when I started coming to the church. God changed me. He said, I didn't hear that he was saved until after that. But what do I believe brought him to Christ? A changed life. Are we being the change that others need to see? What is the hope that we're sharing this Christmas? Oh, come let us adore him away in the manger. That's, that's good to worship him, to love him, to thank him for coming. But our hope truly looks forward. The day is coming when Jesus will stand and separate the sheep from the goats. What is our work, our love, our faith doing to help others, reach others, to love others, to serve others? I wonder if our lives would live up to the assumption that is made here in Matthew chapter 25. Does our lives show that we are his sheep? Are we feeding the hungry? Are we giving drink to the thirsty? Are we taking in the stranger? Are we clothing the, the, the naked? Are we visiting the sick? Are we coming to those in prison? Oh, we support ministries that do these things, but I wonder if we take the opportunity to do that for ourselves. I recently received a call that the Fisher Home is starting service back up in their home. They asked if they wanted... Uh, if we would be interested in coming once a month. 
I, of course, was hoping that so, uh, we, we would do that, and uh, I was hoping that someone could take that in our church and take that on, and I was a little bit hesitant to commit myself to doing this at this moment, and I, I approached a couple of people, and it may be that the Lord may lay upon someone's heart today to take that ministry on or at least help with it. My hesitation was just that I, I feel pulled in every direction right now, and between family obligations and church needs and sermon preparation and remodel that's just around the corner and just general life concern, I, I, was, I was just hesitant. But as I was studying for this sermon, the Lord brought this opportunity back to my mind. That's the very heart of what we're talking about here today. I could easily walk away from the Holy Spirit's prodding my willingness and say, but I'm already doing a lot for you, Lord. Just look at all that I'm doing. <laughs> but the truth is, I need to be willing. Even if someone else is able to help, I need to be willing to give of myself and allow God to fill in the gaps. Allow God to give me the strength. Allow God to take my weakness and make me strong. What about you? What can you do to love, to give, and to serve in your life? Can you visit someone in the hospital? Can you visit someone in prison? The prison ministry is always looking for someone to go in and love these prisoners. Can you give toward the deacon fund so that our church can help people within our church and community that need help? Can you clean someone's house or clean a room at the church that needs some extra time and care? Instead of complaining that it's a mess, could you be a part in helping to clean it? Can you visit a widow or maybe a fellow widow who is struggling? Can you stand outside on a community day like yesterday, offer water or hot cocoa, offer a smile and maybe a track? Could you help organize a community outreach to provide a snack in the church's name to the teams at the school when they play a game? Do you have a skill that can help others? Building, technical services, baking, singing in a choir. Could you put together Operation Christmas Child boxes? where the gospel is sent along with the Christmas gifts to some very devastatingly poor areas around the globe? Could you reach out to the police in our area and let them know that we're praying for them and maybe bring them some snacks? Could you be a greeter, a nursery worker, just a smiling face as you roam as a greeter around the auditorium, greeting people and welcoming people here? Could you take on the coffee ministry, make it extra special for our guests and, ministry and, and members? Could you cook breakfast for the men's prayer breakfast or organize a special meal or activity for the church members? Could you bake communion bread for the deaconesses each month so they don't have to worry about it? Could you regularly take photos and videos around the church and, and activities for us to use for advertising and promotion? Could you watch for those who have not been in church for a while and call them and encourage them, not berate them for not being there, but encourage them? Could you be available and let the teachers know you're available to pick up kids who 
would come to Sunday school but don't have a way to get here? There are so many other opportunities that could present themselves for us to love people around us if we would just open our hearts, pray, Lord, show me what you want me to do to serve the people around me. What great hope we have in Christ. Because of this small babe that was born in that manger so many years ago, we have the hope of a coming kingdom of God where righteousness will rule, peace will reign, and Christ will be our king. Because we have this hope, may it motivate us to look outside of ourselves and serve others that are around us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this passage. And Father, how it spoke to my heart. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work and speak to the hearts of the people of your, of your church. Be with us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing one verse of invitation. And I want to ask you to take this time to deal with the Lord right now. If the Lord spoke to your heart about something,